like we have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. We're glad that you're here, especially those who may be visiting. We're glad that you've come to be with us. A couple we might mention on the sick list, Kathleen Messer is now at home. She came home from rehab, I think, yesterday, and Bob is now down with the flu, so let's remember both of them in our prayers. And Joan is with her dad. She took him to the emergency room this morning, but he's back home. He's, I think, okay. But she's been with him all morning, and that's where she is. Encourage you to get a Bible and turn to John 17 and verse 17. Here in the discussion that Jesus has with his disciples, he says to them, or says in their presence to the Father, as he's praying to the Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What I learned from that is that the word of God is the truth. So when the Bible talks about the truth, it's talking about the word of God, that which has been revealed by the very breath of God. So any passage that talks about obeying the truth, it's talking about obeying the word of God. Any passage that talks about our respect for the truth, it's talking about respect for the word of God. So any principle of truth has to do with the idea of the Word of God. The psalmist worded it this way. He said in Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your Word is truth. Now what does that mean? Everything God says is truth. The entirety of your Word is truth. That means every part of the Scripture is truth. Not just the part about Jesus being the Son of God or being raised from the dead, but the entirety of your word is truth. So what is said about godly living? That's truth. What is said about what to do to be saved? That's truth. What it says about your home and your marriage? That's truth. What it says about the prophets in their lives and what they did and the stories of? That's truth. What the Bible says about creation? That's truth. So the entirety of your word is truth. So let's talk a little bit about truth. What do we know about truth? Well, the Bible says that the truth can be known. We can know what the truth is. Now, as you're turning with me to John 7, there are those who have the idea that truth is kind of vague and truth is hard to determine. Who can really know what, what is truth? And, and truth sometimes is, un, uh, the, the, it lacks clarity, some people think. In fact, some of our own brethren have talked about that God's teaching on certain subjects lacks clarity. So that we can't really determine what God wants us to do on those issues. But look at John 7 and in verse 17. John chapter 7, verse 17. Jesus said this, If anyone wants to do his will... He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Let me paraphrase that. If one really wants to know the truth, he'll be able to see the truth. If they really have a craving desire, I want to know and see the truth of God, they'll be able to see the truth of God. Now let's go back and read it again in that light. Verse 17, if anyone wants to do his will, if anyone really wants to serve God and know the will of God, he shall know concerning the doctrine. What's he going to know about it? Whether it's from God or I speak of my own authority. He's going to know whether or not I'm telling the truth. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 21. John said, I'm writing unto you 
Why is, why is he writing unto him? Well, he said, it's not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And there is no lie that is of the truth. I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. I'm writing because you do know the truth. So we can know what the truth of God is. Here's something else about truth. There is a clear, clear contrast between truth and error. John said, same writer, 1 John 4, verse 6, Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there is a clear contrast between truth and error. If it is not truth, then it must be error. Well, let's go further. Here's something else about truth. 2 John in verse 4 it is possible that we can, in fact, we must be those who walk in truth. Look at verse 4. I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth. We have to walk in the truth. Now, here's something else about truth. It's possible to resist the truth. Those who are responsible for the perilous times, verse 1, 2 Timothy 3, resist the truth. Just as Janice and Jim, uh, Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, he said. So there were some who resisted Moses. They opposed Moses. So likewise, there are some who resist the truth. Let's go further. Look at 2 Timothy 4 and verse 4. It's possible that some could turn away from truth, meaning they saw the truth, they embraced the truth, but they turn away from the truth. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 4. He said in latter times, some would depart from the faith and they're going to speak lies and hypocrisy. They're going to speak a doctrine that is not true, not in harmony with the will of God. Now look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in or 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 4. Those who speak this lies and hypocrisy that they turn away, or 2 Timothy 4 and verse 4, I'm sorry, that they would be, notice verse 4, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside unto fables. So it's altogether possible that some could turn away from the truth, the text says. Look at James 5 and in verse 19. It's possible to wander from the truth. Here's the picture of wandering off the path. Here is the path of truth, and you wander off of that path so that you veer from that. Let him that know that he that wanders from the truth, that it, saves, it will save a soul from death and show how a multitude of sin. So here is one who is wandering from the truth. Now let's go to one more passage on that and getting a clear concept of truth. And that is, it's possible to exchange the truth for a lie. Those Gentiles who are involved and steeped in such sins as homosexuality, they exchange the truth for a lie. I mean, they see the truth, they know the truth, but they don't like the truth, and they take it over and exchange it or exchange it for a lie. Now let's look at that list. Here are some things we know about truth. And we've already seen that the truth is the Word of God. Thy Word is truth. So I can know what the Word of God is. I can also see a clear contrast between the, the Word of God and error. I must walk in the Word of God. It's possible to resist the Word of God. It's possible that some could turn away from the Word of God, wander from the Word of God, and exchange what's in the Word of God for, indeed, a lie. But let me ask you this question. Do you love the truth? How would you answer that if that were a test that you were taking and you had to check the box yes or no? Do you love the truth? The question is not, do you know the truth? Or you even believe the truth? But do you love the truth? 
Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 10. You might open your Bible there, put a marker there. That's where we're going to spend our time is looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 10. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That's the only time that phrase is found in all of the Bible. Now, the Bible talks about loving the truth. But that phrase, the love of the truth, this is the only time it's found in all of the Bible, Old or New Testament. Here are some who are deceived and they will perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. Our question is, what is the love of the truth? Can you say, I have this love of the truth? I love truth. I embrace truth. I love the truth of God. If so, what does that mean? How do you embrace it? What is that all about? So let's talk about the love of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2 and in verse 10. Three things we want to talk about. Here's the first thing. Let's talk about the great apostasy. The great apostasy. What does that have to do? Well, that has to do with the context of our, of our, our text in verse 10. Verse 10 is the verse that talks about the love of the truth. But it is in the context of the warning of the great apostasy. So let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's back up now to verse 3. And let's get the idea of this apostasy and the flow in the context of this apostasy. Look at verse 3. There would be a great falling away. What does that do? What, what, why does he even mention that in this context? Well, there was a misconception that some had that the second coming of Christ was imminent. It was about to happen at any moment. That's why they quit work, the text says. In his warning at verse 3, that's not going to happen unless there is a falling away that comes first. So look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And so whether we understand what that is or what is involved, we do know this much, that there is going to be a great falling away. Now what about the characteristics of this great falling away? Whenever this great apostasy takes place, notice at verse 4, the, those that are involved in this great apostasy will oppose God. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Now there's some discussion. Is this talking about one person or is it taking a movement and personifying it as if it is one person? The latter to me seems to be the case. Whatever the case may be, I'm only interested at this juncture in noticing that those who move and lead in this great apostasy, their leading in apostasy is because they oppose God. That's important. Let's go further. Here's something else about the characteristics. They exalt themselves above God. Look at verse 4. Who opposed and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he sets as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Something that describes the first major apostasy in what developed into the Roman Catholic Church. Well, it's included in that, whether that's what he's talking about or not. But let's go further. Now look at verses 7 through 9. In this apostasy, there is going to be a disregard for the law of God. That's important. For the mystery of lawlessness. Notice the lawlessness. The disregard for law is already at work. Only he who now restrains 
will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Notice the emphasis on lawlessness. A disregard for the law of God. Notice again at verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. So what am I learning? I'm learning that in this great apostasy, there is opposition against God. There is exalting themselves to the point of being God themselves and a disregard for the law of God. Look at verse 9. At the root of all of this is Satan. Not that the one who's leading and being the lawless one is embracing the fact, I am of Satan. I know I'm of Satan. I know I'm following Satan. He may not have a clue about that, but he's following the roots that came from Satan himself. Then the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders. All right. Now I know the great apostasy is in the context. Let's notice verses 9 through 12. Deception during this great apostasy will lead some astray. Now notice verses 9 through 12, and I've highlighted the points that talk about deception. And that is, here are some phrases. Now notice here in this context that he talks about it, verse 10, he talks about this love of the truth. It's right here in the middle of all of these warnings about the possible deception. So when the great apostasy comes, people are going to be deceived. How so? Well, Satan is going to be involved with lying wonders. In other words, Satan is going to do some things that impress people that's called a wonder, but it's deception. That's why it's called a lying wonder. It's not that Satan's over here and he's identified as Satan. Everybody knows he's false and consequently they're not going to follow after him. They follow after him because of his lying wonders. Notice furthermore, look at verse 10. With all unrighteous deception, verse 11, there would be a strong delusion and some would believe a lie. So at least four times in these three verses or four verses, there is the warning that some would be deceived in the midst of this apostasy. So here's what I just learned from that. Powerful point. Those who do not love the truth can easily be led astray. Notice the contrast between being deceived and those who love the truth, verse 10. So I'm learning that those who do not love the truth, I'm not talking about understanding the truth, but loving the truth could easily be led astray. But let's go further in the same context, beginning at verse 13. His encouragement to the recipients of this letter is that they are to stand fast and hold to the truth. They need to love the truth, continue to love the truth. Look at verse 13 beginning. He said, when you became Christians, you believed the truth. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see, when you became Christians, you believed the truth. You accepted it. You embraced it. Now, verse 14, this truth is found and revealed in the gospel. Look at verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel. So this truth is revealed in the word of God. And now, verse 15, you need to stand fast in what you've been taught. Hold on to it. Don't let it get away. Embrace it and love it. Look at verse 15. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Now, let's talk about traditions. Same word is used or same expression is used in chapter 3 and in verse 6. The tradition is that which is handed down. There can be a human tradition or there can be a divine tradition. It is called tradition because it's been handed down from God to man and from, from the apostles to mankind. 
So that's the idea of it being a tradition. Notice verse 15, that you're to hold fast the traditions which you were taught. Well, what were they taught? The gospel, verse 14. Whether by word or by our epistle. So the inspired will of God is called a tradition because it had been handed down. So stand fast in what you've been taught so that you are indeed embracing and loving the truth. Here's something I just learned from that context. And that is that those who love the truth will hold fast. Those who do not love the truth could easily be deceived. But those who love the truth will hold fast to what they know to be true. That will help us understand verse 10. Let's look at some translations of verse 10. Now remember your text probably says something about they did not receive a love of the truth that they might be saved. The New Century and New Revised Standard Version say they refused to love the truth. The NET says they found no place in their hearts for the truth. That's an interesting, that's kind of a more literal translation. They found no place in their hearts for truth. In other words, they take truth. If you ever had someone give you something, we'll come back to that in a moment. Let me illustrate. If you ever had someone give you something, and then you look for a place to put it, and you have no place to put it, I don't have a place, so you have to give it away to somebody else, because I don't have a place for it. I don't have a shelf for it. I don't have... Uh, Maybe it's a piece of furniture. I don't have a place in, in my rooms anywhere for it. I don't have any place where it fits, so I have to get rid of it. So they had found no place in their hearts for the truth. Here's the truth. I don't know. It's not going to fit in my mind. It doesn't fit in my life. So they reject it. That's the idea. They don't love the truth. The Amplified Version said they did not welcome the truth, but refused to love it. They didn't embrace it. They refused to embrace it. They refused to love it. Milligan is not a translator, but a commentator. Milligan said, page 105 of his work, he said they had not only not welcomed this truth, but had no liking for it nor desire to possess it. So they did not only not welcome it, they didn't like it and didn't want it. So they didn't love the truth. Now, the great apostasy is the context. So if we talk about the love of the truth, we must put it in the context of the great apostasy that was talked about in the context. Let's talk about the great characteristics. Now we're talking about the love of the truth. So there's two things that we need to talk about. Love and truth. So let's talk about the great characteristics, first of all, of truth. What are some of the great characteristics of truth within itself? Well, first of all, truth, since it's the word of God, means it comes from God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's a God in breathing. That is God put his breath into the word. These came from the very breath of God is the, is the point. So here is a characteristic of truth. This is a great characteristic of truth. So, so why should I love the truth? Because of its great characteristic. Because it came from God. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3 beginning at verse 3. The Apostle Paul describes the revelation process. Now let's talk about inspiration. Now let's talk about revelation. They overlap, but they're not identically the same thing. So here is the inspiration process, but also the revelation process. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 3. 
How that by revelation, there's our word, he made known to me the mysteries I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. I wrote down the things which came from the mind of God, and you can read it. Well, let's see verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Paul, the things you wrote down and the things that have been written down and is in the written word, where'd you get that? I got it from the mind of God who gave it to me through the Holy Spirit. So the great characteristic of truth is, first of all, it's from God. Here's a second great characteristic of truth. It's consistent. If that's not the case, then something's not true. Truth is consistent. In other words, let's, let's say I teach... Jesus is not the Son of God, but I teach that God called him his Son. Something there's not true. Something's not true because that's inconsistent. Maybe both are wrong, but they both can't be right because they're inconsistent. Truth is consistent. In other words, what it teaches here harmonizes with what it teaches here, and that harmonizes with what it teaches there. Truth, by its very nature, is consistent. If not, something is not true. Here's another great characteristic of truth. It's always right. If not, it's not truth. It's always right. You see, if you, you may embrace a system of error. Within that system, there are going to be some things that are true. But there's going to be some things that are false. And so that system of error is not always true. But truth is always right, or else something is not true. Now let's shift and talk about the characteristics of love. Now what do, how do we know the characteristics of this love for the truth? What's interesting is, there are different words for love, as you know. This is the word agape. Here in our text, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, the love of the truth. So it carries with it the same kind of characteristics. This is the same word that describes God's love for man. God has agape for mankind. This is the same word that describes man's love for fellow man. We're to love all men with agape. It's not the family love. It's agape. So the characteristics we're about to list, we get from the very concept of how this word works with reference to God's love for man and man's love for fellow man. So let's begin to list those. It has the characteristic, first of all, of being this. It's an unconditional love. You say, where'd you get that? Because that's the nature of agape. God's love for man is an unconditional love. Our love for fellow man is an unconditional love, which means that no conditions affect it. What do you mean? It's not a matter of, I'll tell you what, I, I love truth. When it, I was putting conditions on it. I love truth when it fits, now I'm putting conditions on it. Or I would love truth if it's... No, I'm putting conditions on that. Do you love the truth? Truth is you love it no matter what truth says. So when truth goes against me, I'm going to love the truth. When love is in favor of me and it vindicates me, I'm going to love and embrace it. Because it is truth. That's the love of the truth. No conditions affected. It's an unselfish love. You say, where'd you get that? From the very nature of agape. Because God's love for a man is unselfish, and our love for a fellow man is an unselfish love. 
That means there's no personal ambition that change it. Because I love this part of truth. I really love that part of truth. But this part over here goes against what I'm wanting to do and what I'm wanting to accomplish. So I don't like that. You see, truth is not like going through the smorgasbord and you say, I want some of this and some of this and some of this and leave that off. I don't like any of that. You can't do that with the word of God. So it's an unselfish love. There's no personal ambitions that change it. It's a sacrificial love. Willing to give up anything to accomplish its goal. God did. Gave his son. We are to. Ephesians 5. And furthermore, it's a pleasing love. It seeks to meet the needs and the demands of the recipient of that love. God sought to meet our needs. We're to seek to meet the needs of others. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. Agape. And so the same thing is true. Whatever truth demands, then I'm pleasing. It's a pleasing love. So do you love the truth? What, I'm, what we're asking is, do you have an unconditional love for truth? No matter what truth says, no matter what it, where it goes, wherever it may lead, you love the truth. Is it an unselfish love? Is it a sacrificial love? Is it a pleasing kind of love? Here's the third and final great. We've seen the great apostasy in the context. The great characteristics of both love and of truth. Let's talk about a great contrast. When we talk about a great contrast, we're talking about a contrast between the love of the truth and do not love the truth. Which category would you be in? And so we ask, do, do you love truth? You say, well, yeah, I love truth. Well, let's, let's go through some of the characteristics. The great contrast between loving the truth and not loving the truth. Here's the first. One who loves the truth loves truth more than error. There may be some things that are, before we go to the text, let's be turning to Psalm 119, but before we read that, there are some things that are attractive about error. You say, what, what, what would be attractive about error? Well, for example, the doctrine that says there are no conditions of salvation is kind of attractive. Sounds good. And if it were true, wouldn't that be great? You don't have to do anything to be saved. So I'm, I know I'm saved because I don't have to do anything. Or maybe the doctrine that says there, there's no sin that you could commit that would cause you to lose your soul. Once saved, always saved. That's kind of attractive, isn't it? Man, wouldn't that be great if we just believe you could do anything you want to and you, you're still going to go to heaven? So the point is, there may be some things we lack about error, that we lack where error goes, we lack what it does, we lack what it says, but a love of the truth means you love truth more than you do error. Let's go to Psalm 119, verse 127. Therefore, I love your commandments. There's the love of the truth. More than go, yes and fine, go. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. Look at verse 104. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Here is the idea of loving truth means you love truth more than error. There may be some things I like about this error because I like the conclusion it comes to, but I love truth more than error if I love the truth. Now the contrast is, some people love error more than the truth. Let's go to John 3. Go to John chapter 3. Jesus talked about some of the Jews. John records at least that there were some of the Jews who rejected John. They rejected Jesus. 
And here's what the text says, verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Some who do not love the truth, they, they like the darkness better than they do the light. They like the error better than they like the truth. So here's one for example. Suppose they're, they're exposed to this doctrine you just mentioned that says once saved always saved. They like that. They like the appeal of that. I like what it says. I like what it says I can do. It's appealing. And they like that better than they like the truth. I know what the truth says, but I really like what that error teaches. And they have a greater love for that than they do for the truth. They love darkness greater than they love the light. So the question is, do you love truth? Do you love truth more than error or do you like the error more than you like the truth? Here's another contrast. One who loves the truth will know the truth. Jesus said you should know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Let's go back to the context, 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 2, to see this evidence that they know the truth. Back at verse 13, after talking about this love of the truth that they might be saved, how can they be saved by the truth they don't know? Number one. Number two, verse 13 says, they had been sanctified through the belief of the truth. They'd already understood and believed the truth. On the other side, those who do not love the truth don't really know the truth. Or oh, they may see truth and see the part of it they don't like, but they really don't have a knowledge of the truth. You say, how do you know? Let's go back to our text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. They're deceived, verse 10. They are deluded, verse 11. They fell for the lying wonders, verse 9. And they believe the lie, verse 11. They don't really know the truth. If they believe the lie, they don't know the truth. They don't have a good knowledge, workable knowledge of the truth. More about that here in just a moment. Here's another contrast. Those who love the truth are not easily misled. Remember, we, we established that from the context. Let's notice that again from another context. You've heard this passage explained in its context multiple times. And I apologize not for explaining it one more time. In 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Verse 15, Peter says, Paul wrote some things that are hard to be understood. We all know that he did. He wrote Romans, didn't he? He wrote Hebrews. There's some things that are difficult. Difficult texts can easily be twisted and perverted to teach something erroneous. Like Daniel 9, for example, of all things. That would be one very easily to distort. All right, let's go to look at verse 16 now. As also in all of his epistles, speaking them things which some have hard to understand, which those who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. There are going to be people who pervert and twist and, and rest the scriptures to teach something that the scriptures do not teach. So, so what? Big deal. What's the danger? Look at verse 17. Therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the air of the wicked. You see, when people twist and pervert the scriptures, they can easily mislead you and lead you astray. But now verse 18. What's verse 18 about? But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Wait a minute, it sounds like he just shifted gears and, and went to another subject. No, he didn't. He's talking about the same thing. 
Look at verse 16 now. Verse 16, some twist the scriptures and, and the danger of that is they can mislead you. What you're going to do to prevent that is you're going to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. How so? How could they mislead you by twisting the scriptures? They're taking them out of their context. And therefore they mislead you, verse 17. Verse 18, knowing the scriptures are growing in the knowledge means I'm understanding the text in its context. And that serves as an insurance policy against that apostasy of verse 17. So here's what I just learned from that. That those who love and know the truth, and they know the text in its context, they are familiar with their scriptures, they know when it's misquoted, they know when it's misapplied, they're not easily misled and deceived. But notice the contrast of that. We've already noted in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the context that those who do not love the truth are easily deceived, they're easily deluded, and they're easily misled. Do you love the truth? Only text where this is found in all the New Testament. Do you love the truth like this passage talks about? Are, are you easily misled because you don't know the text in its context? Are you easily deceived? Or are you one that says, I'm not going to be easily deceived because I know the text, I know what it says, and I know it's in its context, and I know how that's been perverted. I know the meaning of that text. Here's another contrast. Those who, do, who love the truth are honestly looking for truth. We won't go back and read, but it's John 7, 17. Remember that? He that wills to do his will shall know the doctrine. Here is a person who's honestly looking for the truth. They love the truth. They embrace the truth. I want to know what the truth is. I don't care where it leads. If it tells me I'm wrong, I want to be right. But the one who does not love the truth are seeking to establish perhaps their own ideas. Maybe like the Pharisees. This morning in our class in Luke 15, who ridiculed Jesus for associating with sinners. Or accusing him of violating the Sabbath when he heals on the Sabbath, Luke 14. Luke 13, Matthew 12. Another contrast is, those who love the truth have pleasure in what is right. How so? Well, they love truth. They embrace truth. They want truth. They want, they want whatever the truth is. And they have pleasure in what's right. They want to be right. They want to stand upon the revelation of God. However, those who do not love the truth have pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's go back to our text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 12. That they might all be condemned who do not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Things that are contrary to the righteousness of the law of God. Have pleasure in that. They like that. We've already established that point. Those who love the truth will accept the consequences of that. Whatever the truth is. The consequence may mean that, you know what, I, my previous thoughts and my previous belief and my previous religion is wrong. The consequence may mean, that means that my family who didn't submit to the same truth is wrong. They're lost. It may mean that everything I believed prior to this point of seeing the truth, I found out is, is, is wrong. It's empty. 
Well, one who loves the truth will embrace the truth and accept the consequences of that. On the contrast to that, the one who doesn't love the truth doesn't accept the consequences. I don't like the consequence. I, I don't like that. And so then they reject the truth because they didn't like the consequence. The Pharisees recognized a miracle had been performed. Acts 3. The Jews recognized a miracle has been performed. They wanted to do something about that notable miracle that had been performed. But what they didn't like was the consequence because if that miracle we accept, then that means that the claims of the apostles and the claims of Christ are true. And Jesus indeed is the Son of God. We don't like that. We don't like the consequence. We're not willing to accept the consequence. So consequently, we're not going to accept the truth. What a great contrast between loving the truth and not loving the truth. What a great contrast. Do you love truth more than error or error more than truth? Do you know the truth or is it you're not really familiar with the truth that much? Could you easily be misled or have you been not easily misled or is it that you are easily deceived? You're honestly looking for the truth or establishing what you think is right? Do you have pleasure in what's right or pleasure in unrighteousness? Are you willing to accept the consequences or are you wanting to reject whatever consequences that come with truth? 2 Thessalonians 2.10 Here were some who received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. The great apostasy, the great characteristics, the great contrast to help us understand the love of the truth. Do you love the truth? If you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God, would you love and embrace the truth, come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?